Amen. Well, let us return to the Gospel of John, picking up in chapter 15. And these are the first 17 verses. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. It is God's Word. It is for you. It is food for your soul. And so pay attention. These are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love." These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, author of these words, let your spirit do the work of understanding and applying these words of Jesus in our hearts. For we turn to you now in faith and grant faith to those without, without as, as your word is declared, grant them faith. Do so for the sake of Jesus and the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I feel short. I'm missing one of those standing things up here. Oh, there it is. Hang on. I always wanted to be six foot two. It's my only chance at it. <laughs> well, we are returning back to the Gospel of John after a short hiatus. And we, you remember, we are in uh, several chapters from chapter 13 through 17 that covers just a couple of hours. This is, this is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. It's the night in which he establishes the Lord's Supper and the night in which he is betrayed and then arrested. Jesus has been instructing his disciples since the Last Supper um, they shared where he also washed their feet back in chapter 13. Judas has departed. And as he teaches, John records that Jesus says, arise, let us go from here. If your Bibles are open, if you turn there to the end of of chapter 14, um, there's this strange little phrase right in the middle of the discourse right there. He says, arise, let us go from here. Right at the end of of verse 31, you see that? And then then he goes on. He just begins to to talk. So um, we we do know that from chapter 13 to chapter 18, um, that he's going to end up, they're going to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. So at some point, they get up. And they go. It may be very well that John is indicating that that's what's taking place here. And so they're getting up from where they were for their meal, and now they're beginning to move on towards the garden. 
So that's a good possibility that what's going on. And, and as they would walk, they, they most likely would have passed nearby the entrance to the temple on the way from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, east of the city, and there they would have had this great view of the temple. And Josephus records that there was a large golden vine affixed uh, above the entryway into the holy place, possibly as, as tall as 100 feet tall, this gold, this gold structure of, of a vine. And over the years, wealthy Jews would come and had added golden leaves and tendrils and grape clusters that they said were as tall as a man. And it may have been there and in that context then that Jesus continues his discourse. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the true vine. He says, I am, and this is the seventh I am statement also in the gospel. Over and over again, Jesus declaring himself to be, um, to be God himself and to be um, all of these, giving us all of these pictures of, of who God is and what, he's up, what he is up to, what he is doing. Jesus calls himself the true vine. And the temple, if, if, if it's possible that he's, it would have been in their minds at least, that there was this glorious temple, there was this glorious fixture of, of the vine, uh, of this vineyard or of a vine with all of the grapes on it. Um, the, the, the temple and all the corrupt practices of the Jewish leaders, the temple is not. Jesus is the true vine. And the temple that you had been following is not. The prophets regularly pictured Israel in just this kind of way, um, as the vine that God was tending. You can find many, many scriptures uh, in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as a vine, as a vine that God tends. But almost always, when Israel is referred to as a vine, it's regarding their failure to produce good fruit. I want to take just two passages and, and show you that. If you turn with me to, to uh, Psalm 80, this song of lament with regard to Israel and a, and a prayer for restoration out of their, their situation is, is Psalm 80. And the picture of, of, of Israel is of a vine, a vine that God planted. I'm going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 80 um, of Psalm 80. You've brought a vine out of Egypt. You've cast out the nations and planted it. So the picture is that this vine had been brought out of Egypt. Israel uh, cut, uh, dug up out of Egypt and then brought and planted in another land. Okay, verse, verse 9, you prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which you, your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Or, for instance, Isaiah um, uses similar language in Isaiah chapter 5. Um, he says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it. He expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please tell me, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall, be, uh, shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, wailing. This, vi this vine that the father planted um, is not bearing fruit. And it's, it, throughout the Old, uh, Old Testament, there's these warnings that this vineyard, this vine is going to be pulled out and thrown into the fire and burned in final judgment. Branches that are bearing fruit, normally, branches that are bearing fruit, <clears throat> excuse me, are, are pruned and branches that do not are cut away because we know that the Father is a good vine dresser. So listen again to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. The only way to bear fruit, the only way to bear fruit is for the branch to abide in the vine. And branches that do not abide in him will be cast out. Again, verses 4 through 6. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So notice, notice this. It is the vine that makes the fruit, not the branches. That's the point. If the branch is abiding in the vine then no one is surprised to see good grapes grow. The branch gets the honor, simply the honor, of growing the grape that the vine makes. It is the vine that is the one that is bringing forth all that is needed for the branch to produce the fruit. The fruit in the lives of the believer, then, is not something, um, is not something that they do for the Lord. The fruit is the result of abiding in Christ. The fruit is not something, what Christ is talking about is that the fruit that we are able to bear is not something that we bear and then and go surprise God, look what we've done for you. Rather, the fruit is the result of our abiding in him, just like a branch abides in the vine. Without, being, without abiding in the vine, there's no fruit to be produced. And so, and so the, the, uh, the call for us, the call that Christ is making to his disciples is to abide in him that you may produce great fruit. Well, what about the, these, these branches that are cut out? Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. This passage raises concerns for some that a Christian can lose his or her salvation. If I stop producing fruit, will I be cut out and burned? Well, how do we explain, how do we explain these verses in light of other verses that, that we've heard in the Gospel of John? For instance, in John 10, And I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
or Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If, if he moves in, here, here's, here's what it is. We're, we're told to let Christ abide in us, and we are to abide in him. There's this mutual indwelling. We've heard about this in chapter 14 quite a bit. And, and what, what, he's, what he has told us is that if he moves in, Christ promises never to move out. Um, this was uh, foreshadowed in Jeremiah 32. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. And then Jude 24. Now, who, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joys. The description of the one whose benediction, whose name, whose promise now rests upon you. Um, I put in the notes here um, the first two paragraphs of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 17. I want to read them to you. I didn't put all the verses, but I would encourage you, if you'd like to, to, to meditate upon this, it's very helpful in terms of understanding how the Scriptures teach of the perseverance of the saints. The, the Confession says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Um, oftentimes the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints sounds like, even by the title, that we're doing something. We are doing the persevering for God. I think another, uh, another way to look at it is the preservation of the saints. God is at work preserving us. He is the one who is providing all that we need that we may follow him faithfully all the way to the end. It's not like, and this is, the whole book of Galatians is really about this. You don't, you don't receive the gift of grace, the, the, the gift of, uh, of, of your justification, only be, be left for the sanctification on your own. Otherwise, you're going to get cast out and turned away. The, the, see, the issue is not, um, or I should say the issue is who has whom? Who has whom? If, the ish, if, if at, the, at the end of the day, it's I have Christ and it's up to me to hold on, I'm, I'm not trustworthy. At least if you watch me just this last week, I, I'm not trustworthy. I, I fall and fail and stumble many times. But if the issue at the foundation is that Christ has you, that the Father elected you, that, that Christ ransomed you, that you've been purchased by him, you're not your own, then the question is not whether or not you can lose Christ, but whether or not Christ can lose you. He is trustworthy. He loses no one. He says, I will not allow any to snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, goes on and says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. It's though a double promise of the Son and the Father both holding on. They're the ones that purchased you. They're the ones that brought you in. They're not letting go. And so he loses no one. Well, nevertheless, so what do I do with these passages? What, what, what's going on here? The temple, the temple is right before them. 
and it's going to be cut away. The judgment Israel had already experienced in the siege and destruction under Nebuchadnezzar was a warning was a warning as that temple had gone down that time. And then Ezra and Nehemiah come back and the temple is rebuilt and, and there's the promise of the Messiah coming. Well, the Messiah has come. But the temple, the leaders of the temple, the, the officers of the temple, and, and therefore the spirit of the temple is refusing to receive Christ. We're hours away from it, maybe, maybe just an hour away from his arrest. We're, we're just a, a short period of time from a betrayal, an arrest, a, a, a fake trial in the middle of the night, and then his crucifixion. This, this temple, this, this vine is about to reject the true vine. And the words of warning from Christ are, if you don't abide in me, I don't care about your golden statue. I don't care about your, grape, your cluster of grapes that stand as tall as a man. You're getting cut down and burned if you don't abide in me. And Christians should look to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD in just such a way. That is just what happened. As the Jews reject Christ, their, their doom is foretold and comes to its end, and that temple goes down. 2,000 years ago, the temple's never been rebuilt. Well, that temple's never been rebuilt. Remember, we told even in the beginning of, the, of John, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. Well, a temple was raised up again. Christ and then his people, who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, are the new temple of God, and they, abiding in him, bear much fruit. That's what's going on. But an empty profession of faith renders us fit only for the fires of God's judgment. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, in fact, that's exactly what the question is being brought. Uh, Romans 8 ends with, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and then this, this phrase, um, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the question arises, Paul anticipates the question, well, but what about Israel? Because Israel is, is falling away. They were God's chosen people, and they're falling away. And, and Paul goes on to reason with them, not all Israel is Israel. Well, what does that mean? And what does it mean in the, in the life of an individual believer? What it means is that it's possible, it's possible to have an empty profession of faith. James warns about just such a faith. He warns of a faith that is really no faith at all. It's not a salvific faith. And, and he says the, the, the way you can tell is it is not a faith that produces works. It's not a faith that brings forth works. It's not that works save you. You're saved by faith alone. But you're saved by a faith that produces works. You're saved by a faith that connects you to Christ, that causes you to abide in Christ, to cling to Christ, to love Christ. And as you cling, the life of Christ abides in you. And fruit comes forth. So James warns us, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. It's a dead faith. It's not a living faith. So it's possible to be connected to the church and therefore to Jesus. You can be connected objectively by your baptism. You can be connected um, confessionally, uh, externally. You can be connected covenantally within the covenant, chronologically. Um, you, you can come in under the, under the promises of God to your parents and then you're here and, and you're following along, but, that, but if your profession is not from the work of the Spirit within, then it's not saving faith. And yet, with that, and without saving faith in Christ, 
um, flowing from the unchangeable love of God. That's, that's again from the confession. We're going to be cut away. Be cut away. Jesus explains that the kingdom of heaven is like that in, in another parable, the parable of the wheat and tares. Where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a field where um, the, the vine dresser went in and he planted um, wheat. And, and then the enemy came in in the night and planted tares. And then they began to grow up with, with, uh, with one another. It was hard to tell which is which. And the laborers said to, to the owner of the field, he said, should we go in and pull out the tares? And, and, and the owner said, no, don't do that. Because if you pull out the tares, you're, you're, the, this young wheat, you, you, might be able to pull, you might pull that out and damage that as well. Let them grow up together. And then when the, when the full fruit is revealed, when, when it's really revealed who they are, then the harvest will come and the tares will be taken off and, and cast into the fire and the, um, and the fruitful wheat will be gathered in at the harvest. So... There are wheat and tares within the kingdom of heaven. There are false professions within heaven. It's the, the, uh, the, issue, um, the issue for an individual believer is, have you done business with Christ? Is, have, you, have you believed upon him? Is, is, is your life surrendered to him? And, and, and for none of us is, is that a perfect surrender that it's going on. But the question remains, are you abiding in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? Well, let's, I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to abide in Christ in such a way to inspire, encourage, direct you towards abiding more, understanding more what it means to, to draw upon him in, in real life with real fruit, with real change, and with real security in your salvation. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that you may bear more fruit. And he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So the security is found in Christ. Our security is found in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ, in abiding in Christ. And he goes on, abide in me and I in you. It's not a hard thing. He says, abide in me. And I and you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But, but on the flip side, in, in Christ, we can do all things. Uh, abiding in Christ brings forth fruit. The, the fruit of the Spirit is, is found in the one who is abiding in Christ. And then he promises, and as we bear fruit, he prunes us that we may bear more fruit. Um, in, I don't know if you noticed when it says he prunes um, that you may bear more fruit in, in verse 2. And then verse 3 says, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The, the Greek word for pruning and, and, uh, and clean is the same, um, same root word. So you could, you could almost say, you already have been pruned. You already have had that initial pruning that has taken place. Um, and, and so it's, you notice this, you've already been pruned and cleaned if you abide in Christ. But then there is this ongoing pruning and cleaning that is to go on in the life of a believer, of a fruit bearer. We're brought under the pruning knife of our loving Father's word. That's what he uses to prune us with. What does he prune us with? He prunes us with the word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God is used by the spirit. The word of God is used by the spirit even to discern the thoughts and intentions, the motives of, of your heart. It, you are flayed open. The, the, the sword of the spirit, this, this um, uh, two-edged sword, is, is not this gigantic um, fighting sword. The, the, the word is um, the, the kind of a sword that would be used by a priest in, in cutting up the, the sacrificial animal, carefully slicing that animal up just right and opening up. When, when you hear the word of God, when the word of God is preached, when you read and meditate on the word of God, when, it, when, it's, when it's taught, read to you, children, by your parents, that what, you, what, what is going on then is God is taking that word and he's in your heart, he's opening you up. He's revealing. You should be aware of it. You should be responding to it. You should, you should hear yourself, your heart, more and more as you grow in the faith saying, yes, Lord, I, I see what you're doing. I see what you're revealing to me. It, it should make you hungry for the word even more. You should have a hunger for a word like a, babe hung, like a baby hungers for his mother's breast. You, you should have a desire to be fed and nourished by that word. You want to abide in it and you want, you want that word to deal with you. This is what happens when we give ourselves to the pruning that God promises to do. The word is to have its way with us. And having its way with us is a, a cutting away exercise much of the time. <laughs> And what this means, what this, one of the things this means for the preacher is that he is not to preach with the goal of simply inspiring with sentiment um, and uplifting words, but rather to bring the gospel to bear in such a way that you might leave spiritually feeling like your toes got stepped on, like your nose got twisted out of shape, like a, a little offended because somebody was doing some pruning. Now, now, it, it shouldn't be that the preacher is doing the pruning, but that the preacher is bringing the word to bear in such a way that the spirit is doing the pruning. But as the spirit's doing the pruning, then, then God be praised that we would be convicted of sin, that we, would, that we would be convicted of our compromises, that we'd be convicted of our apathy, that we'd be convicted of our self-deceit. And then instead our eyes would be opened to, to the glory of God, the glory of the gospel, the power of the work of, of, of his spirit in us by his word. That's what we want the word of God to do. That's what, that's what goes on. That's what goes on as we abide in Christ. That's what goes on as you hear God's word preached, read, exposited, applied. Grapevines, frankly, require aggressive pruning. If you, if you watch those who tend the vines, when it comes time to pruning, they are cut down to what looks like, if you don't know anything about pruning, and I've only seen, I've only seen the uh, grapevines being pruned from a distance, but I've watched my wife with roses. She is really into rose bushes. You want to learn how to grow roses well? Go talk to Kim, and I'm going to have to apologize to her later for telling you that. Go talk to Kim about growing roses, but you watch her prune a rose bush, and if you don't know anything about it, you're going to think she's killing the thing. I mean, there's, it's like, there's nothing left when she's done. There's just a couple sticks left. What, what are you doing? She's aggressively pruning so that that rose will produce even more fruit, even more buds. That's what's going on. That's what God is doing in you.
Uh, it's springtime. You go out, you know, this is the ugliest time in your garden, isn't it? This is the ugliest time out in your yard. You just, ugh, just everything's dead and tons of stuff need to be cut back. Maybe it's kind of like your spiritual state right now. It's just a lot of dead stuff. And there's a lot that needs to be cut out. And you want to give yourself to it because he who abides in me, Jesus says, will bear much fruit. Let me at you, he says. <laughs> Let me at you. So he takes the knife to our sinful habits and attacks our prayerlessness by giving us things that we have to pray about. You're not praying. I better give you some things to make you pray. I better, I better give you some things that, that cause you to have to pray again. I'm going to take care of, uh, of cutting away those sinful habits and compromises. He strips away those things that we are resting upon instead of him. I was so comfortable with my little idol over here, and he's taken it away. He disciplines us, it says in Hebrews 12, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. He disciplines us so that we may be partakers of his holiness, that we get to partake of the very holiness of God. Verse 7 and 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. To abide in Christ is to have his words abide in you. So again, abiding in Christ, when you ask, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to have his words abiding in you. And this means that our words align more and more with his words. Our heart with his heart. Our desires become his desires, or we take on his desires. When, when the word dwells in us richly, it does so as we sing the Psalms, we're told. Colossians three sixteen. let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is in the passage that says to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is not to have you know, a few more quarts of the Spirit poured in you when you're running a little low. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. The Spirit is filling us with the Word of God. And as He fills us with the Word of God, we find ourselves teaching and admonishing one another as the body of Christ in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing the psalms. We're singing the Word of God. It, it comes out of our lips then. It, it, it runs back and forth within our minds, in our souls, in our hearts. I, we're, we're not. We've been, we've been learning to sing psalms here for 20-some years. And we're not doing it just because like, we want to be weird. We're doing it because we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And the Psalter is the word of Christ. We want it to be the kind of thing that we sing and then meditate on over and over again. I'm going to give you an example. It happened to me this, this week. I was singing. It was, I, was, uh, I was reading Psalms, and I had read Psalm 103. And I sang 103 aloud myself, and as I did... I found myself meditating upon uh, my, uh, I'm trying to get the right one, there it is, meditating upon the words, and, and I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, we sing, so some of the songs we sing are through composed psalms, 
And those through composed psalms are exactly word for word from, from the scripture. Wonderful way to memorize the scriptures. Learn those herb psalms. Other ones we have are metrical psalms. They have been uh, they put into poetic form to fit the music. Psalm 103 is that way. Well, that means that means that the writer, the writer of this text was Catherine Winkworth. That means that she took Psalm 103 and she meditated upon it and rewrote it until it fit this particular meter. My soul, now bless thy maker. Let all within me bless his name, who maketh thee partaker of mercies more than thou dost claim. Forget him not whose meekness still bears with all, all thy sin, who healeth all thy weakness, renews thy life within, whose grace and care are endless, who saved thee through the past, who leaves no sufferer friendless, but writes the wronged at last, but writes the wronged at last. Or verse 3, for as a tender father has pity on his children here, he in his arms will gather all who are his in childlike fear. He knows how frail are powers who but from dust are made. We flourish like the flowers, and even so we fade. The wind but o'er them passes, and all their bloom is o'er. We wither like the grasses. Our place knows us no more. Our place knows us no more. But God's grace alone endureth. Children's children yet shall prove how he with strength assures the hearts of all that seek his love. And he goes on. What is he doing? What is she doing with these words? What are we to do with these words? Abide in them. Abide in them. Let them have their way with your mind, with your doubts, with your fears, with your anxieties, with your questions. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another as we sing, and, and let God speak to you in these. Christ is there. Christ is in the Psalms. Christ is in the word of God. And he uses that word to, to bring forth fruit in our lives. And it changes the way that we pray then. We begin to pray like the psalmist. We begin to pray, our prayers and our desires begin to align more and more into what God would have us be praying about. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So we will be abiding together and dwelling with one another. My desires will become your desires. So, think about this. Think about, again, the... the the, the branch connected to the vine. Branch is connected to the vine. What, what does the branch desire? <laughs> the branch desires that which the vine has for it so that it can produce much fruit. It's just sucking for the sap. <laughs> Give it to me. I, that's what I want. What is the branch asking for? And the more that we are abiding in Christ and aware they're abiding in Christ, what do we want? We want what Christ has for us. That's what we long for more than, than in anything else. What does, what does the branch exist for? Well, the branch exists to bring forth fruit to the glory of the vine, right? That's a Cabernet Sauvignon right there, baby. Look at that. That's beautiful. Man, that is a beautiful cluster. Well, it's not the branch that's the Cabernet Sauvignon. It's the vine. It's the plant itself. The branch is bringing glory to the vine by producing all of this fruit. And how did it produce fruit? Sucking up from the vine. Give me what you have. That's what he's doing, begging for more of Christ, more of what Christ has for me, and then through that, producing fruit, and it gives glory to God the Father. And if it gives glory to God the Father, why would he not give it to you? Why would he not give whatever you ask for if you're abiding in him, if it will bring glory to his name? I think that's what Jesus is getting after there. 
He goes on in verses 9 through 17, and he's going to connect abiding in Christ to abiding in his love, to abiding in his joy, to reflecting that love and joy in obeying his commandments and in loving one another, which is really obeying his commandments as, as well. Abiding in Christ produces great fruit. Likewise, abiding in his love and in his joy produces great obedience. Abiding in his love and in his joy produces great obedience. Jesus, abiding in his Father's love, speaks the Father's words. His works are the works his Father desires. He obeys his Father's commands, and he does so in the joy of their mutual indwelling. So with that in mind, listen again to verse, I'm going to read 9 through 17 again. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Notice the book ends here of loving the command to love one another in 9 and in 17. So the love that the Father has for the Son is likened to the love that Christ has for us. The Father and the Son have this mutual love for one another, and it's likened in verse 9 to the love that Christ has for, uh, for us. We're brought into this fellowship of love, perfect, eternal, triune love. This means that his love is not, first of all, his compassion and pity upon us. So it's not that God so loved us like, well, you're so pitiful, um, I'm, I'm going to take you in. Because it's likened to the love that the Father has for the Son. And, and the love that the Father has for the Son is connected to his delight in the Son. His love for the Son is a love that, that comes forth from delighting in who he is. Uh, in, in Luke 3.22, at Christ's baptism, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything yet, by the way. His ministry was just about to begin. It was just, I delight in you because you are my Son. And that same kind of love that is produced by delight is a love that Christ has for us, for his beloved. We're told in Zephaniah 3 that God rejoices over you with singing. And I think about this oftentimes as we come to worship. As you come to worship, I know some of you come in here and you're thinking, do I, I just don't really feel like singing today. I don't feel like singing. And I just can hear the voice of the Father saying, sit down then because I feel like singing, I'm going to sing over you. I'm going to delight over you. There's, there, your, your trust in God, your faith in God, your passion for God, it, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Waxes and wanes. Here's what you need to know. God's love and delight over you never ceases. It's unchanging. The delight that Christ has over his bride is unceasing. The delight that the Father has over you in Christ, because of Christ, 
never ends. He never tires. And so sometimes you get up, you think, well, should we go to church this morning? Well, maybe you should ask God. Would you like me there this morning? I don't feel like going. Would you like me there? You bet I do. I delight over you. I'm going to delight over you with singing. You're going to hear the singing of the, of, of the choirs of God's congregation and the echoes of the angels innumerable in heaven as you're lifted up, singing before me and over you as I delight. Psalm 22 says that Jesus joins with the brethren in singing the praises to the Father. Jesus is singing. Why would you want to miss it? This is the delight and the love that God has over you as you, as you come before him. The angels testify to the rejoicing in heaven over one repenting sinner in Luke chapter 15. Jesus intends for that joy, his joy, to abide and remain in you. Verse 11 is important. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Two things to notice. First of all, my joy, so it's Christ's joy. <laughs> it's Christ's joy in you that is going to make your joy full. It's Christ's joy in you that's going to make your joy full. Christ's joy remains and abides in you. It's the same word, actually, meno. It's the same, sometimes it's translated remain, sometimes it's translated abide. Think of it this way. Christ's joy abides in you, lives in you, even when you're not full of joy. Oh, and amen to that, right? And, and, and in the midst of that, it is his joy that is going to make your joy full. How does that work? <laughs> His abiding joy, which never ceases, is the foundation of our joy being full. I, I have a friend, some of you know him, Ted Robinson, great guy. A great guy. He was a deacon in our church years ago. Um, Ted and I are born on the exact same day um, of the year, in the same, same day of the year, in the same year. And we couldn't be two more different people. Um, and, 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 there is a joy in Ted Robinson that is so infectious when he when he's around. It, it does not matter um, what your day is like. It doesn't matter what his day is like. It doesn't matter um, how you're feeling. If, if Ted walks into your life, he is just super excited to see you. He is just full of joy over you. He, he's Italian, so he'll come and kiss you on the cheek and hug you and, and, and make you feel a little uncomfortable with all of his joy just bleeding out all over him. I have never spent, I've never spent um, a day or an hour with, with Ted Robinson and not come, come away feeling more joyful. Never. M maybe that for us. Ted's a great little example for me of the fullness of joy that God the Father has over me. That God the Father has over you. Abide in that joy. Let his joy abide in you. And your joy becomes more full. Understand why, understand that God has saved you and why God has saved you and what he intends to do with you, what his plans are for you for an eternity, how he's going to use you to bear much more fruit, how he's going to walk with you through that trial, how he's going to, how he's going to put down all of his enemies. And we'll be talking about that next, in the next passage. His protection is perfect. His joy is perfect. His promises are perfect. The lie of this world is that turning from your sinful pleasures is going to take all the joy out of your life. But Jesus insists exactly the opposite. The way to abiding joy is to abide in him. 
to abide in him. To abide in the love of Christ is to keep his commandments, it says, verses 9 and 10 and 17. And his commandments can be summarized this, love God and love one another. He goes on to say, while we remain as servants, um, he tells us that we act more like friends, desiring to be with and please and work alongside our friend. Uh, servants aren't told what, the, what, what they are to do, but friends are told they're brought in. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I've made known to you. And so my commands are connected to my plans. And what are my plans? God says, my plans are to give you the greatest of inheritance in Christ, in the heavenlies, for an eternity. And my commands are going to take you from where you are to that. My commands are going to take you to greater glory with me and in me. That's why I command you. My commands are my directions for your glory in me. Let me tell you what I'm going to do, friend. Let me tell you what I'm going to do with you, co-ruler, co-reigner. Let me tell you what I'm going to do with this world through you, through this church, through the churches around uh, our area, through the churches all over the world. Let me tell you what I'm going to do with the preaching of the gospel. Now you go and obey. Because didn't, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for this church. I've got a plan for this generation. I've got a plan for this world today. Obey my commands. Obey my commands, not like chewing gravel. Obey my commands, dropping your sin around and obey my commands because there's nothing but glory on the end. And you're abiding in his joy and you're abiding in his love and you're, and you're believing the promises and you're walking with him and his commands aren't burdensome. They're not burdensome in his, anymore. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. J.C. Ryle says these words about abiding in Christ. Abide, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with Christ. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. This is called the farewell discourse because Jesus is about to leave. And yet in the midst of this farewell discourse, he's telling you about, he's telling us, he's telling his disciples about how what he's about to do is going to cause him to abide with us in a far deeper and greater way. Love is the center of life in the Son and life in the body of Christ because God is love. Four times he's addressed this in chapters 13 and chapters 15. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Chapter 15, our passage. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Paul will pick up on this and talk about the centrality of love and law keeping. Romans 13, 8, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
And we can only do this, we can only love in this particular way because we have been loved. So the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Remember, where did that fruit come from? Came from the vine, not you, branch. You just have the honor of carrying it. You cannot love the way God is commanded to love unless you're abiding in his love. You, you cannot. You, you cannot love the way God has commanded you to love unless you're abiding in his love. And if you're abiding in his love, then you will produce much fruit, he says. There will be much love for God, much love for one another that will come. We only love like him when it is the fruit that has come from abiding in him. And we'll only rejoice in him and in the life that he's working through us when it is the fruit that has come from abiding in him. We'll only know we've been loved and rejoiced over by a living and abiding faith in the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died and was buried. Christ rose again on the third day. And he did those things in love and for the joy that was set before him. He did those things in love and for the joy that was set before him so that you might be put right with God in the love and the joy of God the Father. And only this will usher you into the fellowship of love and joy that he offers. Only the gospel. Only faith in Christ. Not your works. Not your stinking works. Only faith in the one who's done it all for you. And this is what makes us able and only thing that makes us able to love God and to love one another, to obey his commands with great hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, receive the words of Christ. O oh God, our Father, we would have Jesus abide in us. Let your word, your Son, your Spirit abide in each one here. Purge us, prune us, but reassure us in that discipline of your love. Excite our passions and joy in you. May your joy reside in us. May your love reside in us. Keep us from stumbling as only you can and grow us up into the image of your Son. For we ask it in Jesus' name and amen.